Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Survey of Theology. This is a, a series of lectures being given uh, for undergraduate students at Tyndale Theological Seminary, and this is uh, Theo 2301. And so this is a survey of theology. This is going to be lesson number five. <clears throat> lesson number five. And today we're talking about God the Son, his substitutionary death. Um, and so we'll open with that. So let me go ahead and jump into these notes here. Now, the death of Jesus is an important doctrine in Scripture. It is an important doctrine in Scripture. At a point in time, God the Son came into the world and added humanity to himself, becoming fully God and fully man at the same time. And of course, we just went through this and unpacked some of this uh, in our discussion on the doctrine of the hypostatic union or the incarnation of Christ. Of course, some of our key passages are uh, John 1, 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is from the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see the incarnation there. And of course, uh, Scripture reveals that Jesus was born under the Mosaic law. He was born under the Mosaic law uh, as the rule of life. <clears throat> Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of the time came... And God had set up the entire world stage uh, for Christ to come into the world. And so when Christ came, he came at the exact time that God had intended and orchestrated. And so when Paul says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. There's his humanity, uh, in which the occurrence of the hypostatic union uh, came about in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And again, that's Parthenogenesis, virgin conception, uh, virgin born. And Mary is Christotokos. She is the bearer of the humanity of Christ. She is not Theotokos. She's not the mother of God. She is the mother of the humanity of Christ. So she was born of a woman, born under the law. Uh, he, he, Jesus was born under the Mosaic Law Code, and he fulfilled the law perfectly. He's the only human <laughs> uh, to ever come into the world that was able to fulfill the Mosaic Law perfectly. Matthew five seventeen through 19 Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so Jesus went his entire life, and he committed no sin. <clears throat> he committed no sin. Second um, uh, Corinthians chapter five verse twenty-one uh, says, "God made him; He made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin." Jesus knew no sin. He committed no uh, personal sin. Hebrews four fifteen. Uh, <clears throat> says, "For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses." Uh, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, this demonstrates the point that temptation is not sin. Temptation is merely the opportunity and the enticement to sin. But temptation is not sin. Uh, it doesn't become sin until one yields to it. But Christ was tempted in all things and uh, yet is without sin. 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Uh, so Jesus committed no sin, he knew no sin, and in him there is no sin. Now his sinless life qualified him, qualified him to die a substitutionary death. A substitutionary death. This means that Jesus died in our place. First uh, Peter three eighteen tells us that he died. Uh, Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. Now the word for 
in 1 Peter 3.18 translates the Greek preposition huper, huper, which I've given it to you here in the notes. And this is, uh, in, in some cases, here referred to as the preposition of substitution. Substitution. So, Jesus uh, died for us, the just. He is the just one. He committed no sin. He is, he is fully righteous. He is the just, and he died, who pair, in the place of, as a substitute for the unjust. That's me. That's you. That's all of humanity. Christ died, the just, uh, in exchange as a substitute for, in place of, the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. Because we cannot bring ourselves to God. We can't. It's impossible. Impossible. Uh, the scripture is very clear that there are none righteous, none, not even one. The one exception is Jesus. But he died in our place, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. <clears throat> we see Huper used again uh, in Romans 5.8, which says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, uh, uh, Christ died who pair. He died for us. He died in our place. Of course, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins. He bore them upon, our, upon himself. Now, Jesus died in order to redeem us. In order to redeem us, from uh, who are uh, to redeem us who are marked by sin and death in mark 10:45 jesus says for the son of man uh, has did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many and so he died he paid the penalty for our sins and so he came to redeem us who are marked by sin and death, because we are marked by sin and death. And so we cannot redeem ourselves. We, it's an interesting thing that we are all born into a slave market of sin. We are born into Satan's domain of darkness. Uh, Acts 28 makes this clear. First Corinthians, excuse me, Colossians 1.13, at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. But Satan's domain of darkness is a domain in which we are all uh, slaves to sin. And we do not have the means to purchase our own freedom. We are helpless to liberate ourselves from this slave market of sin. But Jesus was born free. And only a free man uh, could, could pay the price uh, to redeem or to purchase the freedom of a slave. And that's what Jesus did. He paid the price. And what was the price that he paid? It was his blood, his shed blood upon the cross. Because the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm, the only coin of the heavenly realm that the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. And so he paid it, and he paid it in full. Ephesians 1.7 tells us, In him we have redemption. Redemption. And this translates the Greek word apolutrosis. Apolutrosis. Uh, which refers to the payment that frees a captive. So in him, not in ourselves, in him we have redemption. Through his blood... And what does it result in? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of of sins. 
And his death on the cross forever satisfied. This, is a, this comes with the uh, word propitiation. But his death forever satisfied. Hilasterion. Hilasterion refers to an acceptable sacrifice that satisfies. An acceptable sacrifice that satisfies. His death on the cross forever satisfied every righteous demand God had toward our sin. <clears throat> Romans three twenty four and 25. We are justified as a gift by His grace. Listen, you don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You are justified in the sight of God uh, as a gift. And if you have to pay for it, if you have to pay one penny, you know what? It's not a gift. It means you bought it. But we never buy it. It is a gift paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he paid it in full. So we are justified as a gift through the redemption, through the redemption there's apolutrosis, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Hilasterion, there's our word. Uh, as a propitiation in his blood <clears throat> through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, the writer to Hebrews goes on. He says, Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. If you go back into the Old Testament and you study the uh, sacrificial system, and the book of Leviticus is, uh, is uh, most revealing about this, uh, there's a passage in Leviticus 17, verse 11, I believe, uh, where it talks about how the animal has been given uh, as an atoning sacrifice because the blood on the altar is what pays uh, the price, is, is the atonement. But the word atonement in the Hebrew Old Testament translates the Hebrew word kafar, kafar, which means to cover. And so in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was a temporary covering of sin until Christ could come and take away sin. And so when you offered, when one offered the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, it didn't actually take away sin. It was a covering. It was a temporary covering until Christ could come and take away sin. And the taking away of sin in theology is what is called the doctrine of expiation, the removal of sin, the actual subtraction of sin. John 1, 29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who actually takes it away. So again, going back to Hebrews 10, 11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that's Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, it was one sacrifice for, uh, for sins for all time, past, present, and future, he then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 1 John 2, 2 tells us that he himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation. He is the propitiation, halasmos, uh, for our sins, that is for believers, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, the death of Christ is sufficient for everyone, but it is effective only to those who believe. 
because it is at the moment of faith in Christ that multiple things happen. Uh, and, but one of those things is that we receive forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1, 7. We receive the gift of eternal life, John 10, 28. We receive the gift of righteousness, uh, Romans 5, 17. And so these things are come to us, but they come to us because the death of Christ was what and done. But when it says here that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, that's called unlimited atonement, which means that Christ died for everyone. Now, for my covenant reformed friends... Uh, they uh, teach what is called limited atonement, in which they argue that Christ died only for the elect. Only for the elect. And and 1 John 2, 2 and Hebrews 2, 9 and other passages uh, argue against this. Now, Christ did die for the elect, that's true. But he died for everyone. It is uh, sufficient for all, effective only to those who believe. But it is a propitiation. His death upon the cross satisfied the Father's demands. Um, we see that word again. Uh, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And how did he display his love? He sent his son to be the propitiation, halasmos, to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies every righteous demand of the Father. Every righteous demand. And his death upon the cross is the basis for forgiveness of sins. Ephesus, Ephesus, which is translated forgiveness, dismissal, or to release. And so the death of Christ is the basis for the forgiveness of our sins. And our reconciliation, katalasso, to reconcile, uh, the reconciliation, that his death is the basis for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, katalasso, we were reconciled to God. And we can't, we can't reconcile ourselves to God, we can't do it, it's impossible. But God reconciled us to himself. How? Through the death of Christ. We were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. 2 Corinthians 5.18-21 through 21, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. We go forth and we tell people, look, be reconciled to God. How do you do that? Believe in Christ. God made a way for us to be restored to fellowship to him, into relationship with him. We were reconciled to him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against us, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though we were making an appeal uh, through us, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that is accomplished by faith in Christ. <clears throat> The death of Christ was sufficient for everyone, Hebrews uh, 2.9. We see where Christ uh, tasted death for everyone, that he uh, might taste death for everyone. And of course, 1 John 2.2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. But... Uh, the death of Christ, though it is sufficient for all, it is effectual only to those who believe in Christ. It is only effectual to those who believe in Christ. Because there is salvation in no one else. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And of course, at Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and this according to the riches of his grace. Now, the following four points are taken directly from major Bible themes, pages 61 to 63. First, the death of Christ assures us of the love of God toward the sinner. God loves sinners, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world 
That's all humanity that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, not when we were sweet, not when we were lovely, not when we were good, not when we were moral, when while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> Amazing. That's love. That's love. First John 4, 9 and 10. But this is, but this, by this, the love of God has been manifested to us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. We don't have life in ourselves, but we can have life in him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. <laughs> I mean, that's good news. I can't, God can, and he did make a way, and that is through Christ. That is why the cross of Christ is so important. It is so important. And the death of Christ, number two, is said to be a redemption or ransom paid to the holy demands of God for the sinner and to free the sinner from just condemnation. Christ paid my sin debt. He paid it in full. Point number three, the death of Christ is represented on his part as an act of obedience to the law which sinners have broken. Which act constitutes a propitiation or satisfaction of all of God's righteous demands upon the sinner? And propitiation is such a theologically rich word. God is satisfied He's satisfied with the death of Christ. He is satisfied with the death of Christ. There's nothing that I can bring. Nothing in my hand I bring. I don't bring anything to God. Zero. Nada. Zilch. Nothing. I bring nothing to God. Nothing. Do we understand this? We bring nothing to God. He is satisfied. Completely satisfied with what? The death of Christ. There's nothing for me to bring. It was finished at the cross. Point number four, the death of Christ not only redeemed and propitiated a holy God, but provided the basis by which the world is reconciled to him. By which the world is reconciled to him. And I listen to people and they say, oh, I'll just follow the Ten Commandments and God will let me in. No, he won't. Oh, I'll just live a moral life and I'll help the hungry and the homeless and the impoverished. Well, that's a good thing, but that's not going to get you into heaven. I hear people say, oh, I'll just live good and you know, take my chances and maybe God will let me in. No, he won't. No, he won't. Works do not save. They never have. They never will. It is only the work of Christ that is sufficient. And man needs only Christ to be saved. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling says the hymn writer. Oh, let me drive a point today. Let me be very clear on this. It is Christ and Christ alone. Now, there are fallacies concerning uh, uh, the son's death. And these uh, three points are taken from major Bible themes, pages 63 to 64. Number one, it is claimed that the doctrine of substitution is immoral. Now, now these, are, these, again, are false these are fallacies concerning the son of death, uh, of the son's death. One, it is claimed that the doctrine of substitution is immoral on the ground that God could not in righteousness lay the sins of the guilty on an innocent victim. Some will teach this. Now, this statement might be considered if it could be proved that Christ was an unwilling victim. But Scripture presents him as being in the fullest sympathy with his Father's will and actuated by that same infinite love. John 13, 1. Now, that, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And in John chapter 10, Jesus said, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Jesus was not murdered. He was not murdered and sent to the cross. Now, he experienced the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the human race. 
as he faced six illegal trials, all under the cover of darkness, three civil and three religious. And by the way, the three civil uh, trials, uh, Herod and Pilate found him innocent and not guilty of, of, of death. Uh, the three religious trials, they, they condemned him. But Jesus went to the cross and he died a death he did not deserve. But he laid down his life and he says, I lay it down and I take it up again. And when we talk about the death of Christ, when he went to the cross and, and he endured the beatings, he, endured, he was, uh, Isaiah 12, 50, uh, 52 and 53 make it clear that as the lamb is silent before shearers, so will the son of man be. And so when he went to the cross, he didn't, he didn't try to get himself out of it. In fact, in John chapter 19, verse 10 and 11, Pilate's a little bit perplexed about Jesus. And he says, you don't talk to me. And he thought maybe Jesus didn't understand who he was. He says, I have the authority to release you and, or to crucify you, and I have the authority to release you. And of course, Jesus set him straight. In verse 11, he says, you have no authority over me unless it's been given to you from above. But Jesus went to the cross, and he was mocked during his trials, and he was beaten in the face. In fact, his, Isaiah says that his visage was marred, uh, was marred more than that of a man. And that means he was beaten so severely that he was indescribable. And he endured the beating. And he endured the whipping, which the cat of nine tails would have had bits of bone and leather and, and steel in it. And so <clears throat> when they would have come down upon his flesh and they would have pulled it free, it would have ripped chunks of flesh out of his body, sometimes exposing bone and nerve. And he didn't say anything. And he went to the cross, and they drove the nails, and again, he did not cry out. And they hung him between heaven and earth. And the only time he cried out was between noon and three, when the sky grew dark, and God the Father takes all of our sins, and he puts them upon Christ, and he judges him in our place. And at that moment, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's when he cries out. But he bore our sin upon the cross, and he willingly did so. He willingly went and he laid down his life. Point number two, it is claimed that Christ died as a martyr and that the value of his death is seen in the example he presented of courage and loyalty to his convictions even unto death. I think in one sense, he wasn't a martyr, but he was courageous and he was loyal. But Chafer goes on, he says, the sufficient answer to this error is that since uh, he was God's provided lamb, no man took his life from him. John 10, 14 through 18. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. That's me. That's you. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. He says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this commandment I received from my Father. <clears throat> Point number three, it is claimed that Christ died to create a moral effect. Since the cross displays the divine estimate of sin, men who consider the cross will be constrained to turn from lives of sin. Uh, Chafer goes on, he says, This theory, which has no foundation in Scripture, assumes that God is now seeking the reformation of men, while in reality the cross is the ground of regeneration. And that's absolutely clear. When I come to those who are not saved, I do not come with them with a message that says, Be good, be better, be moral, as though somehow that is the basis upon which God will accept a person. I don't come with that. That's not the message. God is not concerned about reformation of character. He's concerned about regeneration, that they might be born again. That's the issue. 
Now, afterwards, of course, God wants us to be moral and to grow up and to uh, live the sanctified life. That's true. But when it comes to the lost person, uh, the message is that of the cross. Salvation is a work of God alone. It is never accomplished by what we do for God, but rather what God has accomplished for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and who freely gives eternal life and the gift of righteousness, who freely gives us eternal life. It's a gift. (laughs) It's a gift. Let's move on to lesson number 10. Let's talk about God the Son, His resurrection. God the Son, His resurrection. In the Old Testament, first of all, we see the uh, what is referred to as the general resurrection. These are very blanket terms. In Job 19, 25 through 27, Job says, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me, he says. At the thought of it, he just says, my heart faints within me. In Daniel 12, 2, it speaks of, again, just very general terms. Uh, The resurrection is actually broken into multiple stages. We'll talk about that later when we consider eschatological matters pertaining to prophecy and future events. Uh, but for this passage, we're just looking at the general resurrection. Daniel 12, 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But the Old Testament also specifically mentions the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Psalm 16, uh, 9 and 10 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices my flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And of course, that is used in the New Testament uh, to refer uh, to Jesus Christ, uh, that you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So the New Testament writers clearly understood this as being a reference to Christ. Now, Christ actually predicts his own resurrection. Frequently in the Gospels, Jesus predicts both his death and his resurrection. In Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must uh, go to Jerusalem. And the word must translates the word day, D-E-I, day, And here, uh, we might say that it speaks of uh, divine necessity. Divine necessity. So Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and what? And be raised up on the third day. John 17, 22 and 23. And while they were gathering together in uh, Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. In John chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, as Jesus uh, was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. A little bit of repetition there. See, Jesus taught by way of repetition. A good Bible teacher uses repetition. And I remember when I was in seminary working on my Master of Divinity degree, I used to hear, oh, you never preach the same sermon twice. You know, you always got to preach something new every week for 50 years. Forget that nonsense. I preach the same things over and over and over again. There's some things, like I'm right now teaching a series of lessons on uh, living the spiritual life. I bet I've taught that 50 times over the last 20 years. And if God willing, if I live a while longer and the Lord tarries uh, in his return, I'll teach it again. 
Repetition. And Jesus did here. I mean, talk about repetition. I mean, multiple times he talks about his, uh, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, proofs of the resurrection of Christ. Proofs of the resurrection of Christ. Let me, let me go to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Uh, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here we have the content of the gospel, what it is that we uh, communicate to others, and what it is that we believed in order to be saved. And what is it? What is the content here? That Christ died for our sins, and this according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Do you believe that? Do you believe Christ died for you and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day as the Scripture teaches? Have you trusted in him and him alone as your Savior? Not in yourself or any system of works, but in Christ and Christ alone. Because that is the moment of eternal life for us. But notice what uh, Paul does here. I'm going to chase this out here a little bit. Uh, He says, and that he appeared, and he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, and then to the twelve. I don't want you to miss this, because uh, Christ is an historical person. He came in hypostatic union. He walked among men. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He fed the multitudes. He performed (laughs) performed miracles. Uh, I mean, he was on display for everybody to see and to hear. And after his resurrection, he was seen. He appeared. People saw him. They touched him. They ate meals with him. They, they interacted with him until the time of his ascension uh, in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 9 there. <clears throat> but it says that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, notice this, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time. And then Paul makes a very interesting comment here. He says, most of whom remain until now. In other words, Paul says, look, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. They interacted with him. And this shows that the resurrection of Christ is not some mystical thing that we kind of feel in ourselves. It's a historical fact. And when we read through the Gospels, when we read through these writings in the New Testament, these are written depositions. They are depositions. They are historical documents that are all eyewitness testimony. This would hold up in a court of law. These are eyewitness testimony. Paul says, look, he appeared... uh, uh, to, to Peter, then to the twelve, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at, at one time. Oh, by the way, most of whom remain until now, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, you don't, you don't believe me? Go talk to Linus. Go talk to Lucy. Go talk to Schroeder. Go talk to Pigpen. Go talk to them. They're there. They live over here on uh, Cherry Blossom Lane or whatever. Go talk to them. They saw him. I'll tell you the same thing. I'll tell you the same thing. And this shows that Christ's resurrection was in time and space as an historical event. And that's the way the New Testament presents uh, Christ. Presents it as an historical event. But it is part of the gospel message. And the reality is, and this is what blows my mind. Well, he goes on in verse 7. He says, Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all to one untimely born. He appeared to me uh, also. But what's amazing is there were some people in the church at Corinth which is teaching no resurrection. Now, maybe they got this out of uh, of the teaching of the uh, Sadducees, because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They were anti-supernaturalists in their theology. And so uh, maybe some of these people were from the branch of the Sadducees, and they held on to this false teaching. The Pharisees believed in angels, and they believed in uh, supernatural events, and they believed in the resurrection. But there were some people in the church at Corinth who did not teach uh, the resurrection. And, um, and Paul even says this. Uh, let me back up here just a little bit. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you, and this goes to show that false teaching can crop up in the church, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
he, he goes on, he makes a very solid logical argument. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, is vain. Kenos. It's worthless. It's a worthless preaching. It's a worthless message. Because if Christ is not raised, then who you have trusted in is a false Christ and not the Christ of Scripture. And so you've believed a lie. And therefore you're still in your sins. He says your faith also is vain, if that's true. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. And then he drives the nail. He says, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless because you have believed in a false Christ, a dead Christ, uh, one and one who cannot save. And so if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then his death on the cross was not effective and we have believed in a false Messiah. However, the scriptural testimony is very clear. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day after his crucifixion and 40 days later ascended into heaven. Here are, biblical, here are several biblical facts about Jesus' resurrection. First of all, it was predicted. Jesus himself predicted it. He said he's going to go to the cross, he's going to suffer, and he's going to be raised on the third day. And it showed that Jesus overcame sin and death. In Acts 2, 23 and 24, uh, speaking of Jesus, he says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So he overcame death. And uh, the gospel message is, uh, the, the, the resurrection of Christ is central to our gospel. It is central with regard to the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That is so important. The resurrection of Christ is so important. Because if he's not resurrected, then we have believed in a false Messiah. We're still in our sins, and we're all going to be damned to the lake of fire. So the, so the resurrection of Christ is essential to our gospel message. It had many eyewitnesses, as I just pointed out. Had Peter and the twelve and, and five hundred brethren, most of whom were still alive at the time that Paul wrote uh, Corinthians. And then he appeared to, to Paul himself on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And it was argued as true against those who disbelieved. And it reveals that Jesus, it reveals Jesus as the first among many to be resurrected. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ has been resurrected from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, a euphemism for death. And by the way, as I mentioned earlier, and we'll again develop this later, when we're talking about the resurrection, one must distinguish between resuscitation and resurrection. Jesus brought many people back to life who died again. This is called resuscitation. Uh, but resurrection's different because that means that we receive a body that will never die again will never die again. It also reveals Jesus as the Son of God. Romans 1, 3, and 4, concerning his Son who was born a, of a descendant of David according to the flesh, there's the hypostatic union, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. By the resurrection from the dead. Again, just a driving point here that the scriptures make very, very clear. And it is the basis for our new life. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be what? Born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And resurrected believers will not know the lake of fire. That will never happen. Never happen. Uh, Revelation 26. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death, that is the lake of fire, has no power. Has no power. By the way, uh, the phrase, if you are born once, you will die twice. But if you are born twice, 
you will die once. What does that mean? If you're born once, physically, you will die twice. You will die a physical death, and you will die the second death, which is the lake of fire. But if you are born twice, that is if you're born physically, and then you are born again, regeneration, uh, given new spiritual life, then you will die only once. That is physical death. The exception to that will be, obviously, the rapture. Reasons for the resurrection of Christ. Christ arose because of who he is. He, he could not be, death could not contain him. It could not hold him in its power. It was impossible, uh, Acts 2.24 says, it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Christ arose to fulfill the Davidic covenant. And we'll talk about this more in greater detail when we talk about the future millennial kingdom. <clears throat> but there was a covenant that was given to David that one of his descendants would be seated upon his throne forever. Verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, you need a forever person for that to be true. Jesus is that person. And that's why in Luke 1.31 and following, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, Parthenogenesis, and bear a son, Christotokos. And you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. If Jesus is dead and he's in a grave, that's a lie. But because God is true and cannot lie, Titus 1-2 says it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie. When God says something, it is true, and God will bring it to pass. And if Christ is not raised from the dead, you don't realize there's a lot of other prophecies that speak about the future reign of Christ. If Christ is not resurrected from the dead, these prophecies cannot be fulfilled. Impossible. But Christ arose to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Christ also arose to be the giver of resurrection life because in him we will have resurrection life. Jesus said uh, uh, to uh, Martha uh, in John eleven twenty five. he said to her, I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he poses the question to her, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. <laughs> Good for her. Christ arose from the dead that he might become the source of resurrection power. Christ arose from the dead to be the head over the church. Because he is resurrected, he is right now the head over the church. He is, the, and notice Ephesians 1.20, uh, which, brought, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Epuranioi, he's in the heavenly places right now. Far above our rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. And the church is both an organism and an organization. As an organism, we exist universally all over the planet. If, if the rapture were to occur right now, come Lord Jesus, uh, believers from all over the planet would be caught up. The church would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the universal church. It's an organism. But it's also an organization. We meet locally, but Christ is the head of the church, the body of Christ. And Christ arose because, of, because our justification has been accomplished. And Christ arose to be the first fruits of of the resurrection. So briefly on the significance of the resurrection of Christ, Dr. Chafer states, quote, the resurrection of Christ because of its historical character constitutes the most important proof for the deity of Jesus Christ. Because it was a great victory over sin and death, it also is the present standard of divine power as stated in Ephesians 1, 19 through 21. 
Because of the resurrection, uh, because the resurrection is such an outstanding doctrine, the first day of the week in this dispensation has been set apart for commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and accordingly supersedes the law of the Sabbath, which, has, which had set aside the seventh day for Israel. The resurrection, Chafer goes on to say, therefore is therefore the cornerstone of our Christian faith. And as Paul expressed it in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Because Christ is raised, our Christian faith is sure. The ultimate victory of Christ is certain. And our Christian faith is completely justified. End quote. Jesus' resurrection from the dead guarantees our future. His life is our life. And his victory is our victory. And as Christians, we will be raised because he has been raised. In the resurrection, our new bodies will be like Jesus' new body, which will never know sin or decay. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So He will transform uh, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And that is a body that knows no sin. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we know that we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. When He appears, we will be like Him. And notice down in verse 5, He says, And in Him there is no sin. In Him there is no sin. And so that concludes out our lesson there on uh, the resurrection. Next time we will pick up, we will talk about uh, God the Son, His ascension, and His priestly ministry. I hope that this lesson has been helpful to you, and I thank you very much, and I wish you a good day. (laughs) 